Hi, I'm Jennifer Ackerman Haywood, and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast, a weekly interview show about art, craft, and creativity. I produce it in the hope that it will help all of us live long and crafty lives. So let's get to it, folks. It's time to craft sanity. Welcome to episode 100 of the Craft Sanity Podcast. This is pretty exciting, huh, Abby? Yeah. Yeah. Can you believe that I've recorded 100 episodes? Wow. That's a lot of episodes, isn't it? Yeah. I'm really excited to be able to bring an interview with Abby Glassenberg to the folks at home because Abby and I seem to have a lot in common. Abby is 33, and I'm going to be 33 in about a week. She has two little girls. The same age of my little girls. Abby's out in Wellesley, Massachusetts, and she is a sculpture artist who specializes in making fabric birds. So she makes all kinds of birds. But we have a special surprise for people. Abby made a bird to give away to a Craft Sanity listener. So after the show, we're going to tell people how they can win that bird. I want the bird. Well, you, you don't get to keep the bird. We have to give the bird away. And in fact, Abby is going to mail it out to the winner. So it's going to come straight from Abby. It's going to be really fun for the winner to get it straight from the artist. I want to see the bird. All right, well, I'll show you a picture, and we'll show a picture to the people at home because we'll post it on craftsanity.com. Yay! Yeah, and we'll also have links to Abby's websites and everything else that you'll want to know. Okay, I think we should get to that interview. What do you think, Ab? Yeah. All right, so let's get to it. You can maybe tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how this creative bug got to be in your system. I grew up in Potomac, Maryland, which is a suburb of Washington, D.C. I have an older brother and a younger sister. I'm in the middle. You know, we definitely had a very creative household growing up. Uh, My dad's a lawyer. My mom's a writer. Uh, My mom is definitely a pretty creative person. And we had tons of art materials in my house all the time, paints and clay and drawing. I had lots of fabric. I collected wrapping paper. I had collage materials. We made, you know, our own valentines. We did all kinds of, you know, creative projects, especially my sister and I. Um, My brother is actually a really talented musician, and my mom had every musical instrument. He had music lessons. Whatever he was interested in with music, he had. He had a band. And we were just really encouraged to sort of pursue our own projects at home. Um, whatever creative projects we were interested in doing. And, you know, like when I would get sick and be home from school, my mom would go buy me a new box of crayons. Like, that's what she would do to cheer me up. So oh, that's awesome. We always, you know, we always did lots of creative things. And um, uh, I liked taking art classes in school growing up, like in elementary school. I went to a summer camp, a sleepaway summer camp, actually in Massachusetts, where I live now. And um, they had an amazing like big barn full of stuff to make art in and I took all the art classes that they had at camp and that was actually a really good experience they um they had like enamel making and wow making and they had a sewing machine this was at Camp Ramah which is a Jewish summer camp and um, they had a sewing machine there and I actually made my first stuffed animal it was a white fleece uh dog stuffed dog there that I remember making and bringing home and I absolutely loved it so I guess that might have been the first softie, and I was probably like nine or something. When oh, I made that's that great. One. So it kind of started um, at camp. Yeah. And, um, and then in middle school, I started taking classes after school twice a week. 
with a teacher named Marion Osher, who still teaches in the um, Potomac area. She lives in Rockville, Maryland, and um, she taught art classes out of her basement. And so I would go two afternoons a week for an hour and a half, and she was just a great teacher because you could pick whatever project you wanted. It wasn't like she was like, everybody draw a sailboat. It was like, everyone just draw what you want. And she had a huge collection of natural things like seashells and rocks and things she'd gotten at thrift stores and just all kinds of shelves and shelves of things to select from. And you could pick something and pick whatever media you wanted to work in. I did lots of watercolors and charcoal, whatever you wanted to do, and draw it. And she would sort of walk around and help each person pursue their own thing. Wow. And that was great. And I took those classes um, after school. My sister did, too, throughout um, middle school and high school. And, you know, I really got comfortable with art materials working with her. And I really felt like I learned about, you know, basic shapes and about basic color theory from her and also just started to see art as a way to relax and unwind at the end of the school day. You know, middle school and high school can be kind of stressful, Mm -hmm. and going to her art classes was really like a nice safe haven after school for me. So um, so that was great. You know, I really... I really value that, and that was something my mom, you know, provided for my sister and I, which was really, really nice. So that was my art experience growing up. I, you know, I took all the art classes in high school. I took home economics in eighth grade, which um, is where I learned to sew, and um, I actually sewed a pair of shorts in that class, and they were so badly made. I got a C minus. <laughs> I got really good grades in school. I got a terrible grade on it. Um, and I made a cupcake pillow. I really did not know what I was doing. And I, I, I didn't have at that time, like, the attention to detail it required to actually sew something properly. Right. Um, but I knew that I liked doing it. And so I had my bat mitzvah when I was 13. Um, and it was just, like, the Jewish coming-of-age ceremony. And I um, used some of the money that I had gotten as a gift for my bat mitzvah to buy a sewing machine which is a Burnett 330, and I still use it now. Oh, is that the one you sew all your... I've, yeah, it's the only machine I've ever had. Oh, excellent. Yeah, and I actually had it repaired recently, and the guy was, like, totally impressed with it, because I was like, oh, maybe I should get a new machine, you know, it's broken, it's not worth fixing. He was like, oh, if you don't want to fix it, I'll buy it off of you. He's like, this is an amazing machine. It's actually a machine made for home economics classrooms. It's very, very simple, um, but it's all metal inside, and it's, it's a great machine. It functions really well. It does everything I need. So. Yeah, they don't make machines like that anymore. They don't. Yeah. So and I've bought some new like, like, uh, feet for it and some new accessories for it, but it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, keep that machine. Yeah, yeah, I bought that at um, G Street Fabrics in Washington, which is a great uh, fabric store, independently owned fabric store in the D.C. area. Awesome. Yeah. So... Um, I bought that in eighth grade, and I've, so I've sewn, you know, off and on. I used to make scrunchies, hair scrunchies and hair bows for my friends and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, but I didn't ever really develop those skills so much. You know, I took another home economics class in high school and sort of did, you know, tried a little bit further, but, um, but I, I can't say I was the best seamstress. My mom does not sew. Um, my grandmother does not sew. So there wasn't anybody there to sort of stand by their side and watch them, you know, follow a pad or. Right, right. You know, I was just sort of on my own, kind of winging it. Um, so, but I, but I was always doing crafty things. And then I went to college. I went to Johns Hopkins, which is in Baltimore City, and um, I majored in history, which I'm actually really glad I majored in history because. 
feel like I got a great education at Hopkins. I learned how to learn and learned how to read critically and write critically and how to do research, and um, I, w I was a really great experience. But uh, Hopkins doesn't have an art major. It doesn't even have an art minor. And at the time I was there, there was no art studios at all, which was really just, you know, depressing for me. <laughs> right. As, a, as someone who likes to make things, that was probably the first time in your life that you didn't have supplies all around you. Yeah. I mean, my roommates were always laughing at me because they're like, you have every single craft supply. I can't believe this. Like, they would come in my room and I, I would have, like, floral tape. And <laughs> oh, so you did bring all your supplies with you. Oh, I yeah. I everything with me. I didn't bring the sewing machine, but I did bring, I mean, I, I have to travel with that stuff. Right, right. Yeah, I'm the same way. I feel like I'm going to die if I don't have, like, yeah. the, at least, even if I don't have time to craft, i got to have the stuff just in case. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yes, I had stuff with me, and they'd always, like, they were always laughing at me because they're like, I can't believe that you have all this stuff. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, like, I, for, um, well, we had, like, a multicultural club, and for their, like, big spring dinner, I made origami flowers as all the centerpieces. I made, like, hundreds of origami flower bouquets for all the centerpieces for the tables. You know, I was always doing something right. like that. Um, so, um, but they had a few art classes at Hopkins, and I took all of them. Um, they were like one credit, a normal class was three credits, so they were like really not very <laughs> highly valued by the institution. But one class that I took that was great was a sculpture class, and that was the first sculpture class I had ever taken. Um, and the teacher, it was his first time teaching at Hopkins. He was kind of new, you know, to the, to the community, and his whole concept was that you can make sculpture from things that you have lying around the house. You don't need like a metal shop, you don't need, you know, to carve stone, you don't need to do something that's like going to be, you know, sort of out of your league. Like you can go to Home Depot and get like wire cutters and a couple basic, you know, tools and supplies and you can make something uh, that's really neat out of what you have, uh, you know, in your house or what you find in nature. Um, and so I really, you know, I, I thought that was really cool and I made, one of our assignments was to make something out of corrugated cardboard. And I made um, an alligator with oh, a wow. gun and spray paint and corrugated cardboard. I still have them. Um, and it was awesome. Like, I absolutely loved doing it. Um, loved it. And then I also, we had to make something out of skewers, wooden skewers. Like okay. 12-inch wooden Yeah. So I made a chicken um, precursor to the birds that were to come, I guess. But I made a chicken out of uh, skewers, which my parents have in their house. We call him Sick Chicken. And um, <laughs> and so my those two pieces were in like the the art show and they were on the front page of the school newspaper um, and it was just like it was great it was really fun doing that and um, and they ended up giving me an award at Hopkins for like an art award I think it was I was like the crazy person who took every single art class that they offered and so <laughs> I didn't have anyone else to give it to so when you got done with your undergrad what did well, you do. I had always wanted to be a teacher. I mean, ever since I was a little kid, besides making art, I always was a teacher, always teaching friends, teaching my sister. I always wanted to, you know, I was a substitute or a, a teacher's aide at Hebrew school. I was a camp counselor. Um, and at Hopkins, I ran a tutoring project and I ran a summer program for inner city kids in Baltimore. I had written my senior thesis on desegregation in the Baltimore City Public Schools and was really interested in social justice and issues of social justice and schooling. You know, I had always known I wanted to join Teach for America, which is a program that um, places recent college graduates in underserved public schools all over the country. That was the only thing I applied to do. Um, I applied to join Teach for America, and at that time, they had only 14 placement sites, although now they have many, many more. My first choice was to go to the Mississippi Delta because um, 
I really wanted to go to the South and sort of see where desegregation took place in this country and mm-hmm. see what was going on there now. Um, I was just, that was what I wanted to do and see another part of the country. So very few people request going to the Mississippi Delta as their first choice. So um, most people <laughs> want to go to, like, New York or New Orleans right, or right. L.A. <laughs> so I got my first choice. Um, surprise, surprise. So I went to the Delta to be a teacher which was an amazing and very challenging experience. Um, Where did you, so what school were you in? I was teaching in Greenwood, Mississippi. What grade did you teach? Um, And I taught fifth through eighth grade French. Oh my goodness. Yeah, crazy. Now you didn't mention French, I'm assuming you studied French. (laughs) I did. They they look at your transcript from college and they choose what you're qualified to teach. And you get, like, an emergency certification. And so I was qualified, of course, to teach history, but they really try to fill the need that are, you know, the, the teaching positions that are not being filled by the local people who live in each community. I see. So math and science, special education, and foreign language often end up being the places where there's really a need. And so um, I ended up being qualified to teach French. I was like one class short of a minor or whatever in college. So, And then my second year, I also got an eighth grade history class. So that was totally interesting and um, very, very challenging. Um, no, challenging how so? What was challenging um, about it? Well, you know, the Delta is a very different place from where I grew up. It's extremely rural and isolated. So um, there just isn't access to a lot of the things that I was used to being, you know, being able to do on the weekends and that sort of thing. Um, the community that I was teaching is extremely poor and all African-American. And, you know, their culture was just very different from what I was used to, even from teaching in inner city public schools in Baltimore City, teaching in the Delta was just very, you know, the, the children's families and their sort of cultural frame of reference. It's really different from my own. I was, you know, a Jewish girl from D.C., and it's a very different experience for me to have to learn, you know, how to speak in such a way that I would be understood, what was expected of me as a teacher. It's my first time really being an authority figure in a classroom mm-hmm. and really being the one who needed to lay down the law. Um, discipline is a big issue, um, certainly when you're a first-year teacher anywhere, and there are a lot of tears, lots of days of frustration and crying, but also you know, a lot of great connections with students. I ran an after-school uh, literary and arts magazine, and so I had all the artsy kids would come to my room after school, and we put together this magazine that came out twice a year, and that was wonderful. So all the kids who loved to draw were always with me. That's awesome. <laughs> so that was fun, and um, I met some great uh, teachers at my school who, like, took me under their wing, and they were like my Mississippi mamas. They, like, <laughs> adopted me, and um, I went to their houses, and they, you know, cooked for me and helped me and um, told me what I needed to do differently to make myself more successful. So it was really eye-opening, um, and I'm very thankful that I took the time after undergraduate to pursue that before going to graduate school. So did you teach there for a year? Is it just so for a year? I was there for two years. Oh, two years, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I applied to graduate school to get a master's degree in education. So I applied to a bunch of places I wanted I felt like the Delta was sort of a place of deprivation for me, and I really wanted to be somewhere that would be like a place of indulgence, like the opposite. So, um, yeah, like while I was in the Delta, I cut off all my hair, and I was a vegetarian. I didn't date anyone. I was like in this weird <laughs> place of like self-denial, and then I was like, all right, I'm done with that. So, so I chose to um, 
apply to places that I really wanted to be, and I on the East Coast near my family, and got into Harvard. So I good for you. Went to Harvard. That's and really I was impressive. Totally excited about that. I had a great year in Cambridge, and one of the first things I did was rejoin a Jewish community, which was very difficult to do while I was in the Delta. Very few Jewish people in the Delta, so. I um, started going to the Hillel, which is like a Jewish group at Harvard, um, and then I had a great year getting a master's degree at the School of Education. So that was really fun, and lived in Harvard Square, which was really, really fun. And at the Harvard Hillel group, I met my husband. So he was leading the service that I was attending, so uh, his name's Charlie. So um, we met there and started dating about a year after we met. Um, and then I needed to get a job. <laughs> so I started working at uh, an after-school writing and soccer program in 12 Boston public schools. And I was, so it was uh, writing and soccer? It was writing and soccer. It's called uh, New England Scores. Okay. And um, it was actually started by a Teach for America alumna. So I was like the uh, curriculum director. So I wrote all the curriculum and trained all of the after-school instructors in the creative writing side. I don't play soccer. <laughs> Not soccer person. Yeah. Well, so the idea is that you get the kids engaged um, with soccer and then spring on some education, you know, as yep. part of it. That's very clever. Very clever. Third through fifth graders. It's really, it's this program still going strong and it was a great time. And I was actually really thankful that I worked in an office for a little while and got to see sort of how the, you know, what do people, I always wondered, like, what do people in offices do? Like, I don't understand. They go there, they get their time, <laughs> they leave at five, that's like eight hours. Like, what, how do they spend their time? I just don't get it. And like, I couldn't get a straight answer from anybody. Because I'd always been either a student or a teacher. It's like, right. you just kind of go to the other side of the desk. Everybody knows what goes on in school. Right. But I had never worked, at, like, in an office setting. And so I kind of found out what grown-ups do at work. That was really educational for me. <laughs> they make phone calls and write things and wait for them to get edited and rewrite them. And <laughs> so, yeah, there's a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was good. I mean, I was still interacting with students and with underserved students. But I also got to see, like, I, you know, sat in a cubicle. So that was good for me. But after two years there, I got married. And then um, I, while I was at Harvard... I had a congressional fellowship called the James Madison Fellowship, which paid $24,000 of my tuition at Harvard for the year, and which was great because that was my AmeriCorps money from Teach for America, which was almost $10,000. I went to Harvard for free, which was awesome. That's great. Yeah, because uh, I, I was going to ask about the funding because it's so – a lot of people um, you know, have to rule out – some schools like that because funding is so challenging yeah, and it's very difficult if you're going to get a master's degree in education to get funding yeah it's not like science where you can get some funding um so i was super thankful that i got this but in the end i also had a difficulty with it because part of the regulations is within five years of getting your master's degree you because you did the got the james madison fellowship you have to teach secondary social studies for a year if your master's degree program was a year long, however long you were in your master's degree program, you have to teach that many years. And so I had to quit my job at New England Scores and get a teaching job because I, my five years was, was fast approaching and I really didn't want to have to repay $24,000. Oh, that's the deal. It's, you have to repay it if you don't if do it. If you don't do it, you have to repay that. Yeah, I would say that would inspire most people to yeah. uh, get the teaching so gig. Panic -stricken. <laughs> yeah, panic-stricken. I applied to 36 jobs. I was like, I have to do this right now. Oh, wow, 36. Well, I was like, you know, I, I wanted to have a baby and we were married and I was like, I... I knew I wanted to be a stay-at-home mom, and I just needed to go and do this so that I could. Yeah, it's kind of continue on with the life you'd yeah. planned. Yeah. 
I yeah, like, so it's not just the clock ticking. It's also this um, $24,000 commitment. <laughs> totally. Oh my, I would like up having nightmares. It's horrible. So anyway, I did eventually find a job. Uh, actually, it was a great job. I was teaching sixth grade social studies in the Newton Public Schools, which is a, like alpha to omega when it comes to teaching in the Mississippi Delta to teaching in the Newton, Massachusetts Public Schools. Newton is a really nice community with lots of resources. It does have some diversity, but a much more similar community to the one that I grew up in. So I didn't have the same sort of dissonance between the way that I speak and the way that I conduct myself and the way that the students were used to being, you know, talked to, et cetera. So it was much easier for me to immediately kind of fit in. And I was teaching sixth grade social studies, which is what I majored in. So I had a much more, you know, higher level of comfort with the material I was expected to teach and mm-hmm. ancient civilizations. So I got to do ancient Egypt and ancient Greece and all that good stuff. So it was really, really fun. I had a great job. I had an after-school origami club. Yeah, I did read that on your website, and yeah. I was just kind of cracking up because I'm going down the list, and I'm like, okay, if I was teaching, I would do the same thing, have these after-school art or craft programs. Totally. And just the to origami kind of... club was awesome. Yeah. Was great. We had these display cases, and I had this one kid who was an amazing... He can create his own origami patterns. Like oh, Wow. And he and a bunch, you know, he taught us a bunch of them, and I brought in all my origami paper, and I have millions of origami, but I was really into origami for a long time. And so I brought in all my old books, and the kids just made these awesome displays in our display cases of all their origami stuff. It was really fun, and, and I loved it. You know, the kids who love doing that stuff, I, I just immediately relate to them. So we had a great time. And then uh, I was my second year teaching in Newton, I was uh, pregnant with our first daughter, and then when she was born in March, um, I went on maternity leave, but I knew that I wasn't going to come back because in addition to always wanting to be a teacher, I always wanted to be a mom. So mm-hmm. we knew that I was going to be home with the kids. So Roxanne was born in March, and then I was home with her. And by the time she was around nine months old, I kind of had this crazy crisis where I was like, I cannot just be home with one baby. Like, this is not enough for me. I need to do something more, but I can't get a job because I'm like nursing and I want to be with her but I need to do something more right right I quit my job and I don't know what to do and again lots of tears and crisis time and um, right at that moment I found Luby Lou who um, Claire who was blogging yeah she's um, a great a great blog yeah, yeah one of the original awesome craft blogs and uh, I found her, and she was doing Month of Softies, where every month she would give a theme, and you would make a softie um, based around that theme, and then take a picture of it and, and sort of post it to a pool. And um, I kind of watched it the first month, and then the second month, my mother-in-law had given me, given me some fabric, and I was like, all right, I'll... It was a monster, you know, make a monster. So I made this monster. I still have them. And... Um, <laughs> I made a monster, and I posted it, and I was like, oh, God, this is totally fun. And I was remembering back to, you know, making stick chicken and all this. Yeah, yeah. And so I started, I checked out a bunch of vintage craft books, like 1960s and 70s pattern, you know, softy pattern books from the library when I would go take Roxanne to the library, go upstairs and get my stuff, too, and started uh, sewing during her nap time. And uh, fortunately, she's a good sleeper. But um, so, so uh, and my husband was like, oh, my God. Like, every day he'd come home and, like, first day there'd be one elephant and then there'd be two elephants and then there'd be five elephants. And he's like, what are you doing? But it, once it started, it was just totally unstoppable. And I, I, like, taught myself. I finally sort of had the time and the creative energy 
to teach myself how to really use my sewing machine and how to really sew and had, you know, the patience um, because I'd grown up a bunch to be able to unpick the seams that weren't right and fix them or, you know, just learn the techniques that were, you know, sort of underlie how you make a really well-constructed toy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, reading craft blogs and then reading these vintage craft blogs, especially like the technique sections in the beginning, that's how I learned. And then Charlie and I were sitting in like a Barnes & Noble one night on one of our date nights, it was raining, and I was like, you know what, I want to start my own blog. And I was like, I don't know what I want to call it, but I know I want it to be all about what I do while Roxanne naps. So I thought, well, maybe I'll call it while she's napping. But then when you write that out, it's while she's snapping. (laughs) People are going to totally be confused. So I was like, I'll call it while she naps. So I started my blog, and that was four years ago. And um, at the beginning, it was really, it was about soft toys, but it was also about gardening and cooking and uh, making origami and making greeting cards. And, I mean, I do a million crafts, so I would post anything that I made. And as time went by, it really got to be more and more about soft toys because that's what I was doing more and more. Right. Um, and I started going to estate sales and um, thrift shops and buying old linens. You know, really by reading other people's craft blogs, all of the sort of, you know, saucy craft blogs that were popping up and some of them which had predated mine and learned, you know, about Japanese craft books back when Japanese craft books were really hard to get and got some of those and, you know, built my vintage uh, fabric collection, which is now huge and out of control and, and just started experimenting. And so that's really how we got, you know, where we are now. And I just, I feel really thankful to be a stay-at-home mom right now. I feel like because of, you know, the craft blog and uh, art blog community, like, that's what allowed me to develop and grow this part of my life. And I just feel like this is such a great time to be home and be able to do this and, and uh, when Etsy started I was like one of the original Etsy shops I got my Etsy shop like right when, when it was still free to list things on Etsy like way, way, way back in their first six months and that was great for me you know just to be able to make things uh, at home and sell them on Etsy and post them on my blog and get feedback from people and learn new things uh, it's it just a it was really almost like a lifesaver for me. It like got got me over my my crisis of like I can't just be home with one baby. Like now I have another part of my life that I can develop that's endlessly interesting, um, and that connects me with real people all the time. Yeah. So. Well, and also you get to determine how much you want to work, because if you want to crank out, you know, try to crank out, you know, a dozen softies in a short amount of time, and you can, or you can be like, you know what, I'm just going to work on three or one, or you know, it's Absolutely. you determine and all that. Somebody gets sick you know, gets an ear infection and you can't work for a few days or, um, you know, you have to go away. It's like no skin off my back. It's totally fine. And one of the big things that helped me a lot was having a devoted workspace. I convinced Charlie to give me his big old Ikea desk, which is now in my studio, which is really just part of our bedroom. Um, But I actually really like having a studio in our bedroom because I'm right next to the kids' bedrooms. So I have all my stuff out on this desk and 
I never have to put it away. I do periodically clean up because it gets kind of annoyed stepping on pins in the middle of the night. But, um, <laughs> uh, but uh, not, I don't always, like right now, there's just like batting and wool and all kinds of stuff all over the floor. But, you know, uh, if, if somebody needs me, like if it's, you know, last night Roxanne was having a hard time sleeping, she, her ear was hurting her, and it's like I'm sewing an owl and I can set it down and walk two steps. I'm in her room. I can help her. And then I can come back. Or if Charlie's giving the kids a bath and I have 10 minutes to myself, I can sit and stuff, you know, a bird or I can, um, you know, embroider something. Like, I, I, it's always out. It's always here. And I can always pick it up and put it down. And that's a nice thing about working with fabric um, because I think if you were, if I was like an oil painter or something, I think that would be a lot harder because you have to set up all your materials and, you know, or like with acrylics, they dry out. Right, right. You know, and the nice thing about fabric, I mean, there's so many nice things about working with fabric, fabric, but one of them is that literally like mid-stitch, you can kind of just leave the needle there and go. Right. It's totally spontaneous. You don't have to. It's just wonderful for me. And I mean, there's lots of other things about fabric that are great. Like if you mess something up completely, you can just take out the seam. Mm-hmm. And that's fabulous for me. Like I absolutely love the fact that you can just take out the seam. Or And I use very small pieces of fabric, so it's not really a big sacrifice if like I sew a tusk on an elephant and it doesn't come out the right shape. I can just toss it. It literally is an inch and a half of fabric. So are you still using primarily vintage fabrics? I use a combination. I really like Kona cotton. It's a great, really tightly woven quilting cotton. And uh, I like that for the sort of the bodies of what I make. Like right now, in the last maybe three years or so, I've been making birds. The way that I sort of got towards soft sculpture and especially towards soft sculpture birds, I had been making soft toys and posting them and listing them on Etsy. And I had a show at the Wellesley Public Library where I would go with my daughter. And um, I had 53 soft toys in the show. I had all the display cases in the entire library. Oh, wow. So it was incredibly fun. I was on the front page of the newspaper, and it was totally cool. And um, I really enjoyed it. And I sold all that stuff on Etsy. like the day the show opened, and, and it was really exciting. And for that show, one of the last few things I had made were some birds, some long-legged wading birds. And I had set them up to look kind of like a science museum set up where they were like in the reeds, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like, yeah. it, was, it was really neat. And I, I was saying to Charlie, like, I really, I'll be really excited when I can sell something that sells for over $100. That's really like a significant piece work and immediately those birds sold for over a hundred dollars and I felt so satisfied like I could do something here that would take a long time to make and that I could really develop and that could really sort of sell as a significant art piece and people started saying to me well I can't buy this for my child you know it's got wire legs and it's delicate and it's too expensive to give to a child and I would think to myself, like, you know, it's not really for a child. How much were your things on Etsy? Well, my the smaller things. things. Etsy, you know, um, I think it's very difficult when you're selling things that are made by hand that take a long time to make to figure out the right price. And I'm certainly no pricing expert. Um, I still struggle with figuring out the right price for what I make. So the things that I had been selling, which were toys, you know, I think I was selling for maybe $45, $50, some of that maybe a little more. But the birds, you know, even the early ones that I was making back then, 
they do take a lot longer to do because there's a wire armature that's inserted that's then wrapped that becomes the legs and there's a lot of balancing required and then there's just a lot of small pieces a lot of wings and feathers and embroidery for the eyes and the beaks and so there you know there's a lot of work that goes into it and so I really felt like something that took you know, five, six hours to make, you can't sell for $40. At least I didn't want to sell them for that amount. I really Right, because like, you're not getting paid at all for your yeah, time. Yeah, I really felt like, you know, the, co- the cost of materials and of my labor, even though for me the labor is sheer pleasure, and it really is, I feel like something that is made by hand, it's valuable to people, and that sort of seems to be the, the right price. So I felt really proud of myself when I could sell something that was Sort of more and sort of more toward the the art end of things. You know, it wasn't useful. Like I, you know, I have to say, like I know you're very interested in the sort of question with art, art and craft, sort of where that line is. <laughs> yeah, and people know that so well now that they just bring it up for me, <laughs> um, which, <laughs> which is really funny to me. But I, yeah, I love it. I love to hear what you have to say about Jennifer it. Jennifer, gonna ask me. She's gonna ask me that. <laughs> um, no, but I, you know, I, th- I do think that that's a really interesting question, and there certainly is no definitive answer. Um, but one of the things that, you know, when I was in my after-school art classes as a child, and I would make all of these different paintings and things, and I always felt like, well, what do I do with them all? They would be in this portfolio, and my mom would, like, you know, go and frame them and put them up in her room and stuff. But I was like, you know, I don't really feel like there's a need for them. And I really always liked the craft side of things. I loved to make things that were useful, make the pot holders and especially with greeting cards. You know, I always felt like if I made a little ephemeral piece of artwork that was on a greeting card and I gave it to somebody, they enjoy it as a piece of art. Some people would keep theirs and some would throw them away, but there was a use for it. Right. You know, I needed a card for somebody. It was their birthday, so I made them a card. And that was very satisfying to me. I always liked the sort of utility piece of making art. Making the soft toys, they were useful for people. They would buy them for their babies or for a baby gift, or they'd put them in their, you know, in the nursery or in their child's room or whatever. So, you know, there was a use for them. And then um, with the birds, it was like, well, what, you know, they're they're not a toy. Um, And I was just sort of at this crossroads, like, well, that's what I really want to make and want to focus on, but they take a long time to make, and so, and they're they're sort of delicate and they're fragile, and. I was like, well, I want to have another show, but I want, but I don't know what to make. You know, I really liked having a goal. I'm very goal oriented, and I loved having a show booked and making things for a show. Mm-hmm. So I was um, emailing back and forth with Lisa Congdon, who's just an amazing person and an amazing artist, and and I was like, you know, I I don't know. I had really admired her journey as an emerging artist, and so I was talking with her about beginning to show things in galleries and how to do that, or in the art menus and how to do that, and. She was like, what you make that, that you could do for a gallery would be the birds. She's like, if you want to do this, that's what you need to do. And that sort of suddenly gave me permission to pursue it. I was like, okay, she thinks I can do it. I'm going to do it. So I just took that summer after that show and just decided I don't care if they don't sell. And I don't care if I can't list them, you know, if nobody likes them or whatever. I'm just going to make them, and I'm going to make them and develop them as much as I can, and we'll see what happens. So I did. You know, I started by, I bought, like, an old Guinness bar towel and made a raptor, and I just started making all different kinds of birds and figuring out how to balance them and how to do the wire best. I learned about wool stuffing uh, from Mimi Kirshner, who's an amazing doll artist. 
she lives really near me, and so she and I became uh, friends in person, not just from oh, that's our blog. Cool. And so she came to my house, and she showed me a lot of really great things. She showed me some really great embroidery techniques, and she was actually the one who told me that when you stuff a toy or a sculpture, in my case, you need to stuff it really firmly, and you know there can't be any lumps. It needs to be. You need to take your time with stuffing. And she told me about surgical forceps, which are amazing. I love my surgical forceps. Oh, so that's the key that's to the key. stuffing. And that's the key for turning, too, because I have tiny little beaks and tiny little things I turn. And I have these surgical forceps that actually a blog reader whose husband is an eye surgeon sent me. Apparently, eye surgeons use these and, like, throw them away every day or something. They have, like... Oh, yeah, because they can't use them on another person's eye, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. She, like cook them for me and I, I'm forever grateful and the ones I love the best are like ridged on the inside and they're a little bit curved they're fabulous I can't live without them I use them all I actually have calluses in my fingers for all where <laughs> my surgical forceps are so are those something I mean can somebody that is making softies and they are like oh okay I need to get some surgical forceps yeah. is this something that people can buy or yeah, you can you have um, okay. I actually did buy a pair before this woman sent them to me and I think I had posted the pair I bought and she was like oh I have a million of those my husband throws them away and she sent me a whole package but you can buy them on teddy bear supply teddy bear makers supply website okay mm-hmm. if you google like like, you know, handmade teddy bear supplies, you'll find them there. Okay. Teddy bear, artist teddy bear makers. Or just befriend your local eye surgeon. Yes. <laughs> Drop by the hospital. I don't know how... Bring cookies, you know. Yeah. Make a um, stuffed eye for the person in exchange for some surgical <laughs> forceps. <laughs> I'll show you something. Um, really, they're, you'll be so happy if you, you got them. They clamp. Too, so you can clamp things closed if you need to hold them closed. Oh, yeah, while you're stitching. And wow. oh gosh, they're just fabulous. And so I use them for stuffing. I use, like, grab tiny bits of stuffing, and I, I cram it really hard into sort of the extremities of all of the things I'm stuffing first. And, and so Mimi taught me about stuffing really firmly, and that's actually how I get my birds to stand up because there's no loose fabric in there. It's, like, tight, tight, tight. And she taught me about wool stuffing, too, which wool is wonderful, and I actually order my wool from a woolen mill that is owned by an Amish family, I guess, that's in uh, Pennsylvania. I just got two new three-pound rolls of wool in the mail, and it's really affordable. It's um, only maybe a dollar more per pound than buying polyfill at your local Joanne Fabrics, and it's wonderful. It smells good. You know, it has that woolly lanolin smell. Oh, yeah. And so the difference between something stuffed with polyfill and something stuffed with wool, what is the main well, benefit? Well, I mean, you know, poly, there's lots of different kinds of polyfill. There's kind that's like sort of squishy, which I never liked. And then there's a kind that's kind of crunchy in that kind. <laughs> I know. it's And it's hard to tell which brand is which. But the crunchy kind is good because you can pack it really firmly. So I was using Buffalo Bat Super Fluff, which I ordered online. Actually, Mimi and I split a wholesale order of that. And that, that stuff was great, and it, it's, it packs really firmly, um, and it is about a dollar per pound cheaper. And it's machine washable. So if you're making a toy, I highly recommend it. Um, mm-hmm. It's called Buffalo Bat Super Fluff, and it's fabulous. And uh, so I used that for a long time, but the wool... I really like that it's a natural material. It just feels better, and it kind of warms up when you're using it, like it warms in your hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just you know, it's, it just feels better than polyester. 
can't really describe why. So do you use it for everything now? I do. Okay. I, use it for, I mean, I very rarely make toys, but if I do make a toy that, like if I'm making a baby present, I'll, I do have two more big bags of buffalo bats. Okay, so then you'll bats. revert to that if it's something that a parent might want to wash if the child yeah, drops exactly. it. Or, yeah, exactly. Your birds are not really intended for to be played with. If you toss that into the wash, then no. not a good idea. That would be not a good bad. idea. Yeah. <laughs> Very bad use of, of the bird, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. so I don't have to worry as much, I guess, about the machine-washable nature of things. Yeah, it's just aesthetic and just um, yeah, working and with it. Yeah, it's how looks... freeing that was. I was just so happy to not have people email, like, is this, you know, button going to come off, and, you know, it could be a choking hazard, and is this, you know, machine-washable, and all this kind of thing. Like, I, I just, I really enjoyed the fact that, like, they weren't toys. And for me, that was so freeing to be able to make something that um, could take, you know, eight hours and could have hand-sewn feathers and could be made from vintage fabric that was delicate and mm-hmm. could have wire parts and just sort of open up this idea of soft sculpture. And I think soft sculpture is a difficult word. I think it's a difficult term. Sometimes my husband and I will be looking in the newspaper and there'll be, you know, listings for art events around town and it'll say soft sculpture. And so I'll look it up and say, oh, that might be interesting to go see. And it'll be like this really conceptual soft sculpture. And you might know what I'm talking about where like there's, you know, kind of this. I don't even know, like fabric that hangs. Oh, yeah, yeah, where it's not sewn or stitched at all. It's just kind of draped or or, something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, the term is used very, very broadly. And so if you, you know, you you race over thinking that you're going to see something like what you make. Yeah. And it's um, someone has draped something over or the fan's blowing or something. I I guess it's just, I don't even know the word, but the only word I can think of to describe it is sort of this conceptual art. Right, right. So it's kind of more an experience and a, yeah. It, but it's it's and then they take it down and it's not it's no, no longer it's not there. A thing. It's yeah. like an installation. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's difficult. And when people ask me, like you know, friends of my my daughters, um, their parents will say, "Oh, what do you you know, what do you make and or what do you do?" And and I'll tell them, you know, I make self sculpture, and they just look at me like really quizzically, like I don't understand. <laughs> like what exactly is that? Yeah, yeah. What it, what that is? And um, and so I say, you know, now what I do is I say I sew. I so like stuffed animals, but taking them to a sculptural level. And that kind of seems to click in. Okay, like they might not know why the heck anyone wants that, but they can picture it. You know, yeah. I, I tell them I'm working on a series of birds, and they're like, okay. <laughs> yeah, well, it is an unusual thing because that's the way we've identified. We always, people are always asking, oh, so where, where, you know, when we're in school, we say, oh, so where do you go? Right. And then when you're, you have a job, it's like, well, where do you work? What do you do? When you get to the point where if you're working independently and you're doing, you know, an art, you know, you're in the arts, it's hard sometimes to be able to have a, a label that fits with what, or it kind of explains exactly what you do and have people in mainstream uh, jobs understand exactly what that means and as you're telling your story here about the kind of path you've taken from going for the toys to continuing to develop your skills and make these fine art pieces I think it's really interesting because you did make that conscious choice that look I don't care if this sells or not 
I'm going to make this. And I think right. a lot of people stop short of that point. And some, for some people, it's financial. Right. You know, if they feel like they got to be cranking out stuff that's going to sell. So not everybody has that ability or that opportunity to do that. But I think what is really wonderful about what you said is that I think a lot of people, the people who do stop at that point, and if it's financial, I don't fault anybody Not for, for totally. I mean, cause we all have to eat, we have to eat, we have to feed our children, you know, um, but there's sometimes people, they're too worried about how their work's going to be perceived to, to, to just kind of go where it's going to take them. And I think it's really wonderful t- to hear you say that you just kind of, you just did this and you started making these birds and they're, they're very popular now from all I can gather and the shows that you've done since. I think that there's, there's definitely a big fear there to sort of stop doing something that already was, was pretty popular. Right, right. And, um, and to sort of go in your own direction. But for me, like, that's what really made me happy. And there was a lot of false starts and experimentation. You know, I did some craft shows. And, you know, got a booth and did some local craft shows and realized I actually really hate doing craft shows. I hate sitting behind a booth and <laughs> spending my time that way. Yeah. I can't, and I don't like it when people pick up my stuff in front of me and ask me questions about it. I don't like it at all. I feel really uncomfortable. Well, you feel probably really exposed. I know with my work, I mean, that's, you know, people are picking up, you know, I used to um, do a lot of weaving and I would do these little art craft shows and I had these two little ladies come past and one said to the other, who would pay $35 for a dish towel? And it was a chenille scarf, you know, (laughs) I'm just like, oh man, you know. I can't handle that. I just. At the last craft show I did, I came home, and it was actually here in Wellesley, and I told my husband, we have to put our house on the market. i got to get out of this community. They don't understand me. (laughs) (laughs) I actually was, like, seriously thinking of moving. Like, I just, I couldn't handle that kind of comment, and I think it's not the community. I think it's just me in that environment. It just, I couldn't, I did really just liked it. I really just, just felt like people didn't understand, like, what aesthetic I was looking for and why I would spend my time doing this. Like, it just was not something that uh, I, I could handle. So I stopped doing craft shows. And then for a while, you know, I was selling a lot of work in retail settings. So toy stores, you know, sort of um, independently owned toy stores would contact me and um, home decor, sort of high-end home decor stores. Either I would contact them or they would contact me. You know, people would find me and want, you know, wholesale orders. So I did fill some wholesale orders, uh, both with toys back in the toy making time and then with more sculptural pieces, more, you know, in, in the sculptural time and realized that, like, I hate doing that. I hate making 10 things that look all the same. I yeah. can't make them that way. I actually can't make things in an in a, um, assembly line. I would, like, for example, get a piece of white Kona cotton and cut out 10 birds or five birds even and say I'm going to make, or five of anything, and say I'm going to, you know, sew all the bodies today. Like, and as I would make them, like, each, they didn't have any personality to me. Like, I, the way that I make things, I make them one at a time. Mm -hmm. So even if I'm going to make, let's say I have a show booked for November, and, you know, it's June. So uh, even if I'm going to make eight larks for the show in November, I'll make one lark this month, and then one lark next month, and then maybe two the month after, but not in a row. 
In other words, so they'll all get made, and they may all even be from the same fabric. Like if I wanted to do a series where they were all monochromatic mm-hmm. and put, make them all white and have them all like flying or, you know, kind of put them in an installation sort of setting, I think that looks really great in the gallery, and I would totally make them all you know, monochromatic or all in a series so that they were connected to one another, you know, color-wise or whatever. But I would never make them all in a row because it just burns me out and it takes out, like, whatever sort of creative joy that I have uh, that that sort of fundamental idea was based around. I just, it, it, I lose it. So I had to learn that, you know, over time that I can't make them that way and I can't expect myself to make them that way. That the way that I make, you know, I, I take four or five days to make each piece and each piece is made one at a you know one at a time. Well, thank you for sharing that about your process because I think any of us who've tried to ever make anything to sell, it's easy to get caught in that trap. You get something that's successful, and then next thing you know, you're cranking things out. And then sometimes what happens to a lot of artists and crafters is the joy gets sucked out, and then you just see a very tired person sitting behind a booth with lovely things on the table in front yeah. of them, but they just think, look like they've lost lost—they've lost what got them into it in the I beginning. I there are people who can do it and who, who can do it very happily. Yes, I have met several people who they're can. Yeah, very successful. And I think, you know, that's a great way to build a business on Etsy. There's some very successful Etsy shops, some of the top-selling Etsy shops. There's one particular product that that person makes, and they're known for that product, and... People come there to buy that product, and they've sold thousands of them. And they're still creative, and they're still making hundreds. I think Heidi Kenny is a great example. She makes hundreds and hundreds of totally adorable fleece donuts, mm-hmm. for example. And like we exactly. have several, and my kids love them. Yeah. And Heidi is still, I think, very happy making them, and people are very happy to buy them because they're great. And she's a great example of somebody who works tremendously hard, and she's very creative, but she is able to crank out wholesale orders. It's admirable, and I mean, I think that's a way that she and I are just so different. Like, I may also make soft things with fabric, but I can't work that way. And it took a while for me to figure out, okay, well, what can I do? Like, how can I work? And so now a lot of times, you know, retail establishments will contact me, and I turn work away a lot because... I, you know, first of all, this is not, you know, fortunately for us, this is not like the basis of our financial livelihood. So if I don't make $100 this week, it's okay. But also, I know that that will make me feel angry. And Charlie's always like, <laughs> oh, no, she's getting angry right. with the fabric. But it's I probably do. actually priceless to him to have you maybe turn away that $100 job yeah. but not be angry. Yeah. You know, he's like, oh, don't please don't accept any more like this. Like, you hate <laughs> this. You know, um, so, so I just realized what I like. And what I do like is I like having shows, gallery shows, even if they're sort of not at a typical gallery, any kind of show, if that's at a library or at a retail store where they have sort of gallery space, I would love to find more spaces like that in the Boston area. There doesn't seem to be, at least that I know of, a lot of space like that. But but I have found some, like I just had a great show at Youngblood Gallery in Atlanta that was awesome with a painter who did great stuff with me. And and that was really fun. You know, I prepared for it for like five months and I made 17 pieces and then we installed them all and it was great. It was a really successful show. And, 
you know, I'm happy to go to the opening and talk to everybody about the work. They can't pick it up because it's in a gallery. So, right, right. And it, the fact that it costs, you know, $120 for something, it's fine because it's in a gallery. Nobody's going to mistake it for a dish towel and say, why is it $40? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, because, yeah. You know, so that's great. And then the rest of the time that the stuff is at the gallery, I'm not there. So if people are coming in and saying X, Y, and Z, like, I'm not there to hear it. Right, right. Um, so that works really well for me. You know, I enjoy it. I've had several shows. I had a great show at Artstream. I had, a, you know, I've had some great shows like that, and it's been really, that's been really fun. For so, me. do you normally sell out with most of your you know, pieces? Some, I've, I've never sold out. No, I have never sold out. I've, sold, you know, but I have sold, you know, many pieces, and they often they like the best ones or the ones that are most sort of interesting or intriguing will sell right away. Or if the gallery has an online shop, will sell before the show opens. Like oh, wow. My show at Youngblood opened on a Saturday night. And Saturday afternoon, a couple came in, and I had I had three white gulls that were flying, and then I had two black crows that were flying, and they bought all five of them oh, wow. to hang in their bedroom before the show opens. So, you know, it's just stuff like that. You know, the, the right person who comes in who understands what you're making and thinks it's great is all you need, you know. <laughs> is it hard to let some of those pieces go? Like if there's a piece that you really are like, wow, I love this piece. You know, I, I don't feel sad. And I think a lot of the reason is because I take a picture of, the, of everything I make. I always take pictures and I post them to Flickr and I post them to my blog and then I'm able to say goodbye to them. And I don't feel sad at all. I write about the process, and I write about how I made that particular piece, and then I can let it go immediately after that. I know I don't feel sad about them. I mean, there's sometimes I'll go back through my Flickr stream, photo stream, and look at things and say, oh, you know, I really liked that one, but I don't want it. Like, even now, I have probably 40 things in my Etsy shop, and so my bedroom is full of birds, and Charlie's like, they're all on his side of the bed. <laughs> um, so he wakes up and he's like, I'm in the aviary. Every morning I wake up and their little eyes are peering at me. <laughs> yeah, that, I'm sure that's an entirely different experience than the couple that came in and bought the birds that they wanted for their yeah. bedroom. <laughs> now they have an aviary and their little beady eyes are staring at them. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, I mean, it really, I don't have that much storage space. So, you know, I mean, I'm happy for them to go. And and um, I'm the people who buy them, I always feel like, um, you know, they, they buy them. It's kind of a special thing to own, and they appreciate them. And I just, you know, I've had really great sort of long-term relationships and online with several customers who are repeat customers and who just seem to really understand what it's all about. And um, so I'm happy, you know, if they, they buy something, I'm really happy for them to take it. I can always make another one. You know, I always feel like I'm whatever people say, well, what's the favorite thing, you know, favorite thing you've ever made? And whatever I'm working on right now is the thing I always like the best, even though almost everything I make goes through a period of time where I hate it. I'm like, <laughs> I'll go to bed, and Charlie's like, why are you so grumpy? I'm like, ah. Now, is there a particular part in the construction that makes you hate the piece? Not really. I actually come to like each part of it. I like planning and picking the fabrics. And during that time, like, I almost always listen to podcasts while I'm sewing. And I listen to a lot of things. I listen to The New Yorker. I listen to you. And I listen to, I listen to lots of things online. And, but there's certain periods of time when I can't listen. And so when I'm picking fabrics, I, I can't have any distractions. Right, because you have to focus on what you're... Right. 
I have to decide exactly what I want it to look like in the end and get it sort of in my head. And then if I'm designing a new pattern, of course, I can't have anything else on. I just have to sit and, and draw and figure out how it's going to work. But if it's a pattern I've made before, like right now I'm working on an owl, well, I already have all the pattern pieces cut out and everything. So then it's, there's a sort of mindless period where you're cutting out the pattern and, and just doing the basic sewing. So I'll just put on the iPod and I zone out into my own world and I enjoy that part of it. And then I usually come back, set it aside and come back and turn and stuff it another time just because I want to be fresh. Because turning, you know, turning small parts, you have to be patient. Yeah, um, that's, and do you have any, you know, you use your surgical tools, right. but anything else you recommend for turning? Because yeah, um, turning I, gives one, people fits. I, I read in a Japanese craft book a long while back that you should turn the extremities first, like the very smallest parts. Oh, first, okay. Yeah. Which I thought was really good. So, like, I'll take my forceps and stick them in there, and then I, I pull, like, the very tips of the tail in, or the very, you know, bottom of each, like, thigh or leg up. So that it's, they're all kind of pointing inside, and then I turn the rest of the body. And so what happens is once you turn the rest of the body, they're all, all the little pieces are already done. Oh, wow. Because there's a lot of danger of ripping yes. the fabric, and I'm sure we've all done that. Oh, you, yeah. Mm-hmm. You try to stick something hard, you know, something sharp in there to poke it. And Especially it if you're right getting through. frustrated and you poke it, you're like, that's it. It's not working, and you shove the thing in, yeah. and it just rips. And then boom. Yeah, and then so, you're back to square one. One of the things I struggle with generally in my life is I'm always in a hurry. Yeah, I have that problem too. (laughs) I'm always moving on to the next thing. I'm very patient with people, but I'm not patient with other things. And so I'm always trying to hurry through everything. And my New Year's resolution for like 10 years has been to slow down. How's um, that going for you? (laughs) (laughs) It's hard. But I have to say that sewing, I can move really slowly. And I think it provides really good balance in my life because... One of the things with turning small parts is you can't get angry and get frustrated and try to rush and then poke through the fabric because then you have to throw the whole piece away. Right. So you have to sit and very slowly and methodically try, and if it doesn't work, poke it back up and try again a different way, set it aside and come back. And you really, in with stuffing too, you have to use really tiny pieces and you have to just be very careful and very slow. If it doesn't look right, if the beak doesn't look right, I take the beak off, you know, if the eyes are, I embroider the eyes and it took two hours and I don't like it, I take them all out, you know, and embroider it again. So I've really taught myself to slow down and it has to look right before it's done. Mm-hmm. And if it looks wrong, I'll even, you know, a month or so later, I'll come and take it off and put it back, you know, do it again, which is, again, one of the nice things about fabric is you can do that. But um, really, like... I think it helps provide balance for me because I have to slow down and make it right. And there's no, there's just no shortcut. So how old are your kids now? So after Roxanne, um, we had Stella, who, um, so they're now, I think they're about the age of your girls. They're five and three. Yeah. 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 I wish we lived closer. I know. Because they would love to play with your girls. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then we could craft, you know, we We could work on our projects. Yeah. Um, Yes. They're five and three. So, um, so actually, we're at a good stage right now. You know, they're both in summer camp in the morning, which is crazy for me to ever have this amount of time to talk to you on the phone. Like, wow, this is really great. Yeah, it is kind of a miracle for both of us to have <laughs> the time. <laughs> that's, that's cool. And then I, we have the whole afternoons together. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a nice summer. It's my girls, I know, when I'm working on a project, I try to put some extra supplies out. And they, a lot of times, so they do some hand sewing. And, you know, they, I kind of try to involve them and just kind of... Sh- 
keep them though away from if I'm working on something that I don't want to get messed up. I kind of say, okay, right. here's your stuff, and this is mine right here, and we're all at the same table or sitting in some chairs together. Are they part of the mix when you're working on your art, or do they do you kind of try to do this after they go to bed? Or yeah, they're really not. In fact, I really can't work when they're awake. I think there's always been a pretty big border between my taking care of them and my working on my own artwork. And for me, that provides sort of an outlet and kind of a, uh, you know, when you're, when you're a stay-at-home mom, you spend all of your time caring for other people, caring for children, and they require a lot of care. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoy doing that with them, and we certainly do a lot of crafty things together. They do some sewing, but they, we do all kinds of crafty things. We make our own Play-Doh. We do lots of cooking. We do lots of artwork and drawing. We have every stamp, rubber stamp, and um, <laughs> tissue papers. I mean, their kids' friends come over, and we always do art projects together. So, you know, I certainly do crafty things with them, but when it comes to doing my own artwork, in order for me to kind of get into that creative zone where I can start to make things and think about them. I have to be away from my kids. Actually, I'm away from... I don't like it when anyone's in the room. <laughs> so it's really a, a thing you do in solitude then? Yeah. I, I actually really like to be alone. I can be alone for hours and be very happy. For better or for worse, I, I do really like to be alone. Um, I like social interaction too, but I don't need a ton of it every day. Even though I was a teacher, which was very overwhelming at times to have so much social interaction. Right, that's a lot of, yeah, that's a lot of social interaction, yeah. Yeah, um, so I am happy. I have so many projects and, you know, creating soft sculpture is endlessly fascinating to me and I have a million more ideas that I haven't even started yet. So I, you know, I can stay in my house and just, sew and work and cook. I love to cook um, and bake. So I can kind of go back and forth between those two things. And then when the, the kids are home, you know, I do, I sort of have a separate thing. I do, you know, I take care of them and I play with them and do projects with them. And and so there, yeah, there really are two very separate things. And they know, mo- you know, mommy's sewing. Um, and they know all about my, you know, and they're very respectful of my my stuff and my space. And- that makes sense because if you have times when you have to have some silence and you prefer to work by yourself, that it'd be hard to have kids coloring right next to you if yeah. you're trying to, yeah. For me, that just doesn't work. But I know, I mean, I see people um, on, on blogs all the time who like have their knitting bag. I don't knit, but I wish I did. But they, you know, would knit projects while their kids are playing near them and stuff. And, and maybe I could do that kind of activity, but I, I, I can't do what I, you know, what I'm working on now. I can't. I never really thought about what, well, what do I do when like working on projects with the kids there? And the projects are different. If I'm working on, like if I'm doing it, some knitting or making a granny square or something, you know, the kids can be in the midst of all that. But if I'm working on an art quilt, uh, that I'm trying to figure out the design or what to do next. I'm working on one right now that I just can't seem to get the the next part. You know, it's like I'm like, what do I do next? I can't decide. I can't be working on that with the girls right there. Mm. Um, so it is kind of different different kinds of projects. I'm kind of the woman with the knitting bag that goes all over the place, you know. Yeah. But I wouldn't bring an art quilt out to right. wait at swimming lessons, you know. Um, right. So, yeah. But it, I think one, it kind of goes back to like a, a, one of the themes I'm picking up on here from you is that you really have kind of through trial and error and the longer you've done this kind of figured out what works for you. And I think for you know the listeners at home, what we can take away 
from your story is the fact that, you know, you kind of have to have, you know, look at the other bloggers out there and the other people who have been successful making things and making things for a living. But at the same time, just because as you know, Heidi Kenny is making the same, a lot of the same items and selling them and, and she's very successful and popular, that approach might not work for everyone where your approach is, you know, you're making one of a kinds and you're working at a slower pace and you've kind of found your groove. Right. Um, I think the mistake that a lot of people make um, when they're kind of getting into it is they, they look at somebody that they just really admire their work and think, wow, that's so great. And try to apply the exact same approach. And part of the, the learning process here is just kind of figuring out, can you work with other people in the room and can right. you make the same thing over and over again? And, or do you want to just be a pattern maker and, and write a pattern and make one design and then sell the pattern, you know? Right. So there's all these different approaches. And, oh, I wanted to talk to you about patterns, actually. Sure. So you make, you design your pattern. It sounds like you use some of the same patterns over and over again. I do. I design patterns, and actually this is another great Nini Kirshner tip. I draw them on freezer paper, which is a Reynolds product that's available at the grocery store, and it's shiny on one side and matte on the other. And so you can draw with pencil on the matte side. It's just like regular paper. You cut it out with regular scissors, and then you iron the shiny side down onto fabric. It's like magic. Um, and it sticks <laughs> temporarily, and it doesn't leave any residue. What's great about that is you can keep the paper ironed to the fabric and sew directly around the paper, which allows you to get really fine details on the sewing machine. And then when you remove the paper, you know, you've got that really nice outline of what you've sewn. And so I do that a lot. And um, all of my patterns are made on freezer paper. And then I... When I'm done with a particular pattern and I've made that object and I really like it, I keep that pattern in an, uh, just a regular mailing envelope and I just label on the outside what it is. Um, and then I have them in big boxes. So it's not the most efficient system when I'm like, where was that elephant? I need to go. But eventually I find it and, um, and I'll you know, mark it or I'll draw a picture of what it looked like on the front so I know what it was. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so I do have, I have all of my patterns there. And everything I make starts with a pattern. And for everything I make starts with a sketch. And usually it's a profile sketch. And then I figure out how to make a gusset and an underbody that will flesh it out and make it uh, three-dimensional. And then um, sometimes I'm wrong. <laughs> so I make, usually make the first, if it's the first time I usually make it in white muslin, which is an expensive fabric. Right. Try it, uh, make edits to, usually it's to the gusset and the underbody so the, the legs don't splay out and the head doesn't look funny. And, and then I make it out of the right, you know, the, the chosen fabric that's probably more expensive or vintage and then short supply. But everything has a pattern. I really, I've tried in the past, you know, like, um, well, I want something here. I'll just cut this fabric and make it. And, uh, no, I have to draw it on paper. And a lot of times I can actually cut out the paper pattern piece and stick it against, even with scotch tape, and kind of stick the pattern pieces, the paper pattern pieces together and kind of get a feel for what it's going to look like. So everything has to be drawn in the sketchbook, made onto the freezer paper, uh, cut out, and then sewn that way. And so that way it's great, too, because I can save all the patterns. So I have everything that I've, all the things I've made for years. I have in you know in these mailing envelopes, so I can go back. And it's nice, like a magazine contacted me and they wanted a particular toy that I made years ago, and so I was able to go back and get that pattern out, revisit it. And it's always surprising to me if I haven't sewn that pattern in a while, I'll find a better way to do it now that oh, I didn't yeah. know about. <laughs> yeah. And I don't find it as overwhelming. Like, I can make it more quickly and better because I learned, you know, I'm just a better hand sewer. I'm faster. I know how to make, 
you know, what kind of thread to use. I know, you know, what kind of needle to use on my sewing machine to make the, make it, you know, because for a lot of, for a long time, a lot of the frustration with making soft toys was not understanding basic sewing <laughs> techniques, like the fact that needles on your sewing machine come in different sizes. Yeah, a lot of us, you know, my big mistake was I would leave my needle on for like ever. Like I wouldn't change it at all. No, and, I had the same needle. On yeah, and I'm for just like, like well, it still it's still working. What's the deal? You know, and, and then I realized like, oh, when I change needles, it's so much nicer. <laughs> I went to the sewing store and I was like, listen, I've had the same needle on there for like over a decade. She was like, oh my god. <laughs> at this quilting store, he was like quite the quilter. She was like, you are terrible. Yeah, so, you're supposed to actually switch. They say every project, which I'm not. I'm not I, good. Yeah, I, don't I do buy that. them like in these big wholesale boxes, so I have hundreds of them, and I, you know, I use a really, really thin needle so that the hole that it makes is small, because otherwise the hole is too big, and then either the fabric will rip around the hole or the stuffing will come through. So oh, yeah. I use a tiny needle so that the hole that it makes is invisible. And I use a really short stitch length, like tiny. The stitch length is tiny, which makes it difficult to unpick. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that would be terrible. <laughs> if you make a mistake, you're like, oh, God. Yeah. But <laughs> it is possible, and it prevents things from ripping. So I can, you know, I sew. It's really, really tight, um, which is great. And, so, and I, I always keep the running foot on my machine. I constantly have the running foot, which... For me, it's great. Like, I, a friend of mine who's a quilter was like, yeah, I, I just keep the running foot on my machine all the time because it, it pushes from above and from below somehow. Mm-hmm. I'm not really sure how that works, but apparent, but it, it, what, the problem I was having was that little tiny pattern pieces were getting stuck down into the machine. I don't know if you've ever seen Oh, yeah. I've jammed up my machine countless times. And you're yeah. like, oh, my God, it's stuck in there. Yeah, yeah. It's like <laughs> it eats, it gets eaten by the machine. And it, yeah, it, that is so annoying. And then when you pull it out, it's all frayed and you can't even use it. Right, and so, it has a big wad of thread on the back. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. So if you keep the running foot, and there may be another solution, but the solution that I've been using for like a year is if you keep the running foot, which you use for quilting, I guess, which I'm not a quilter, but I bought it for quilting and I never use it, but now I use it all the time, on there, it stops them from getting sucked down. That's and a great I, tip. Almost no, nothing ever gets sucked down into my machine anymore. And I, I seriously, I sew things that are like a half an inch long, less. So are you using tweezers, like, to hold on to one side of it, or are you only Sometimes using... Sometimes I do. I use my fingernails, or I'll use a pin, the tip of a pin to hold it. Yeah, because that's, that's really small, the yeah. pieces you're working with. I sew very small things, generally, but um, sometimes it's just bigger things, but usually, yeah, the birds, they're, like, five inches. I mean, the, the, well, the owls are taller. They're probably, like, more like 15, but, but even so, there's lots of small parts. So I, this is, that's been really helpful to me. It's just to, um, to figure out some basic frustration avoiding techniques <laughs> so that I don't end up throwing away a lot of things and feeling angry like I can't make it look the way I want it to, to look. Now, do you plan to stick with birds or do you have other creatures no, you want to make? You know, um, people are always like, are you still working on birds? Um, you know, I'm not done yet. I would say, I, first of all, I enjoy birds. I think they're cool. I think there's an endless variety of birds. Oh, yeah. Um, I think as a home decor object, birds are not going out of fashion. I mean, I think if you're going to buy a little something to stick on your bookcase, a cute bird is always going to be a cute bird. Right. It's going to be, yeah. I don't think anyone's going to be like, oh, yeah, those birds are I mean, so I know yesterday. Birds are trendy, 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 and they're sort of going, maybe going to go out of being so trendy. Um, but, uh, but even when they're not trendy, I still, you know, my grandfather collected owls, everything owls, um, for years and years, and I have lots of his owl salt shakers and all yeah the well it's part and of I nature think people, there's something appealing about a little bird for that reason you know i think 
they, they, they'll stick around. I don't really foresee being done with them. I'm not, I don't think I'm going to start making dolls. I'm not super interested in, like, human figurative forms, but mm-hmm. I do like making other kinds of animals, four-legged animals and under-the-sea animals and all that kind of thing. And I, I actually would be interested in, in working more abstractly. I got this really great book called um, Manipulating Fabric that shows all these different techniques for doing sort of more abstract fabric pieces. So I would love to get more, you know, learn more about that. I wish there were, like, classes taught somewhere locally, but I feel like I just have to teach myself because it doesn't seem to be something that's taught around here. So, you know, I think that there's lots of places to go next, and I have lots of ideas. Especially I'm really interested in creating environments for the, for the birds or for whatever I'm making and sort of installing them in a space. Oh, yeah, and that opens the door to a That's bunch totally of other cool. things. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot to think about, like, you know, even going to retail stores who have really great windows and looking at the way that they drape fabric from the ceiling and sort of installing my soft sculpture pieces in a non-conceptual way. <laughs> right, 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 <laughs> right. Maybe getting toward it in a certain yeah, way. Yeah, you might be you might be taking a more, another step closer to that. Pretty soon you're going to be pooling fabric behind know, your birds. with like drips of my own blood. <laughs> I don't even know. But... And then you'll cut your hair off and it'll yeah. be in a pile and you'll make a, a little bird nest out of it. And... Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. So um, please stop me before I... No. <laughs> I'll send you a little message. <laughs> I'll take a vacation in your area and be okay, sister, we need to talk. <laughs> but the thing is, though, some people, though, it's all a matter of preference. Because some, for some people, the conceptual is like, that's really, really that's really what I've they want to do. I've some really good stuff that looks like, you know, that, that is sort of... It just sounds like that would be a, a departure from what yeah, you, and right from now, your plan. Now, yeah. yeah, right now it would be. But, you know, I'm interested to see because people ask me a lot, a lot, are you going to go back to teaching? You know, are you going to go back to work? And... And I always feel like, gosh, well, I'm doing this now, and well, I don't know. Well, when people say you're going to go back to work, even though this is fun work, it's it's. don't you consider it work, though, still? You know, I do and I don't. I have a hard time feeling like people will say, oh, you know, I, I do, are you working? Are you at home? And I'm like... Oh, you're kind of working at home. Yeah, yeah, so sometimes I'll say, no, I'm home. And then sometimes I'll say, well, I work from home, or I used to be a teacher, and now... I do some artwork from home. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it? It is so confusing. You it know? is hard because honestly, like, I, it's not as though I'm supporting the family. I am with my kids. I don't have a nanny. They're in their camp right now, but, you know, it's not like daycare. It's right. camp. And, right. uh, you know, I have to leave in eight minutes to go get them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I am home with them, and their needs come first. And that is my primary job. And I do really feel like I quit my job to take care of them Mm -hmm. and what this leads to who knows you know I mean I I would love to continue to do this and I think I've got a lot more to make before I'm done so I don't know you know people it's a hard question to answer it's it's just like you know saying I'm an artist like well what what is that how did you know how do you get that qualification like I'm an artist like, I don't know like sometimes I'll say to people I'm an artist and then other times I feel uncomfortable saying it so I don't know you know I think it's, it's sort of a, a mushy sort of murky area yeah you're definitely not the only one who struggles with those questions because it comes up all the time yeah. when the people I talk to and 
Yeah. Well, so what can we expect next? I know you need to go and pick up your girls, but um, <laughs> what can we look forward to next from you? Um, well, you know, there's going to be lots more softies and lots more self sculpture to come for sure. You know, I think a book would be great. <laughs> but yeah. It's, it's still, you know, in the, um, in the sort of thinking about it stage. I think more gallery shows, hopefully somewhere local, um, so friends of ours can actually come. It's hard when it's, you know, in Atlanta or something, and we live in Massachusetts. Um, well, do but, you even get to go to those shows when they're uh, in Atlanta? I, go, I went to this last one, my, but, you know, a lot of them, no, we don't get to go to. Like, I just mail everything and hope for the best. But it's so much more fun to be there. Oh, yeah, and definitely. And it's, so it's so fun to install and set it all up and create the environment yourself and, and then, you know, go to the opening and sort of see everybody's reaction to it. It's absolutely fun. So, you know, I'd love to find some more space in the Boston area that can accommodate something like that. So, you know, that's it, I think. We're just going to keep on plugging forward and try not to be in a rush. <laughs> yeah, we are doing a great job, and I think you've inspired a lot of us who have been watching you make your birds and all the other things you've been doing. So I wish you all the best of Thank luck. Thank you so much. A special thanks to Abby Glassenberg for being such a great guest on this 100th episode of Craft Sanity. It was a pleasure to share this episode with all of you. I just loved how Abby not only told her story in an entertaining and engaging way, but she also was really generous with some tips and tricks from the forceps for stuffing and turning these very detailed creatures that she makes to tips about what kind of stuffing to use. I think all of that is really useful to the rest of us who want to just make cool things on a one-off basis. So that was really great. And I think it's great, too, that this is really just one more story for all of us to kind of listen to and and think about and use it as some inspiration to get out there and do our crafty thing. So thanks again, Abby. I really appreciated that. Okay, so Abby Rose Haywood, you're still awake, wanting to help out. So let me show you something here on the computer. I'm going to show you this picture that Abby sent me, the other Abby, Abby Glassenberg sent Look at that bird. That is the bird. She's calling it a springtime bird. It's five inches tall, stuffed with 100% wool. Her legs are wire wound tightly with black floral tape. And her body's sewn from 100% cotton fabrics. And her eyes are embroidered with dark brown embroidery floss. Her beak is fabric stuffed with wool. And there are machine sewn details on her wings. So this bird is something that she would sell for $65. And guess I what? Think. What? I think we have enough money. We do, but you know what? This bird's not for sale. This bird is very special because this bird is going to be given away to a Craft Sanity listener. Oh. So for those of you listening, here's the question that Abby and I are very interested in hearing your response to. When Abby and I were chatting, we were talking about our kids and some of the similarities we have in our lives and the fact that our children are the same age. We both have three and five-year-olds. And uh, Abby and I are both very crafty. So we thought that it would be fun to ask you folks what project we should do if we're ever able to get together to craft with our girls. You know, we'd just like to hear what projects you think we should do as a group. So all you have to do is go to craftsanity.com and leave a comment about what your 
suggestions are for a group craft session. The deadline to enter this contest is going to be July 25th. So leave a comment on the blog by July 25th and you'll get in this random drawing. Also, for those of you who follow Abby's blog, you've already heard this great news, but we talked about book possibilities during the interview. And at that point, she was not in a position to to reveal that she has a book deal. Her contract is with Interweave Press. She's going to basically be releasing instructions to make many of her birds and the techniques she uses to make them. So that's going to be a really fantastic book. In the meantime, I'm going to post some links over at craftsanity.com so you'll be able to find Abby's website, read her blog while she naps, and see all the fabulous birds that Abby is making. So... Abby, we wish you all the best of luck with the book. I think you're going to do a great job on it, and I can't wait to read it. And for any of you folks that want to hang out after the music plays, I'll do a brief after show. As usual, if you have any comments, suggestions for me, feel free to just send me a note, jennifer at craftsanity.com. I'm getting a lot of great suggestions for interviews, so I'm going to do my best to work those in. Thanks for tuning in, and... Thanks for sharing your time with me and listening to my show. Uh, some of you have listened to all 100 episodes, and you know that is you know kind of amazing to me. I really appreciate your support. I'm going to continue to do my best to bring entertaining shows to you. So thanks again for the opportunity. I've had a blast putting these together and talking to all the inspiring people that I've gotten to talk to. I'll be back soon with another episode of Craft Sanity. In the meantime, Craft Sanity, my friends. It works for me. Okay, so this is the after show for episode 100 of the Craft Sanity Podcast. It's really kind of hard to believe that I've produced 100 shows with the help of my husband, Jeff. When this thing started back in... Oh boy, that was 2005 was the planning of this. It's, it was the first episode was released in 2006. I really did not think that I was going to have a second show, let alone 99 more. There have been some episodes where, well, let's just say I've gotten a little better, uh, thankfully. Because when it all started, it was a little rough around the edges. And it still is pretty homemade. But it sure has been a lot of fun. It's been quite a kick to get to interview talented people from all over the world and help them share their stories with all of you, listeners at home. So it's really been great. And uh, the fact that the Knit and Crochet Today episode that I was on, where I did a little interview with Brett Barra, um, it was really kind of interesting because on that During that interview, I said something like, well, you know, I haven't quit my day job yet. Between episode 99 and 100, or somewhere in the mix there, by episode 100 of this podcast, I did quit my day job. Um, It's not because I'm making loads of cash off the podcast. In fact, I don't know if you noticed, but we didn't have a sponsor for this episode. (laughs) So, you know, the economy is terrible, and, you know, I quit my day job. Uh, It's been kind of, um, it it sounds insane. It It really does sound insane. But I think this definitely was the right move because I'm really, uh, I'm really excited about the future and the things that I hope to do that I now have time for. So that's pretty exciting. So, Abby, I know you raised your hand like you're in school. It seems like you have something to say. What, what would you like to say? Um, 
is to let your children um, draw a picture and then you can um, trace it and, and, and turn it into a softie. Oh, okay, so you have a, you want have a suggestion then for the contest. You, your suggestion that if you get together with a bunch of kids and a couple crafty moms, what you should do is have them draw pictures and then turn them into softies. Yeah, we like to do that a lot, right? We did a TV segment together recently about that. Yeah, it's on the computer. Yeah, well, that's a great suggestion, Abby. All right, folks, I'll be back soon with another episode. In the meantime... Sammy, my friends, it works for me. All right, thanks, Abby.